we we did like a um, Oregon Trail style computer game when I was in college about the serum run. And so I knew like all about all the mushers and the dogs' names and like all this crazy stuff. And there's this there was this guy who showed up in the bar in Juno one night. He said, "You don't know anything about mushing." And we're like, "Actually, we do, sir." And <laughs> and he and he's like, "Oh yeah, do you know this?" And he kept asking us trivia questions, and we knew all of the answers. And he would buy buy us a shot of Jaeger every time we'd get one right. And that is the I just got annihilated, all all on like weird old old serum run trivia. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Hello Alaska, I'm Matt Buxton and I'm Pat Race and this is a podcast about Alaska. In today's episode we're going to do our best to talk about mushing dogs and the big race they did rot which is set to start this weekend. But unfortunately we don't know anything about mushing. Yeah <laughs> so. so we're going to be bringing a, a guest a little bit later to help us out there uh, but first we're going to talk about the news. All right excellent um, so news of the day um, what's going on Matt? So I think the interesting thing that popped up on my radar was the article about uh lynn gaddis yeah uh, representative gaddis um did an interview with uh was it ktva mm-hmm. um and she, she basically said uh that if you're a senior in alaska living on a fixed income that um uh, maybe you want to consider moving yeah which is um, you know, I've sort of seen this attitude kind of emerging, especially for, I think I've heard it from her earlier this session when she was talking about rural schools. She was the one that was talking about raising the minimum number of students in a school, uh, right. in effect, killing a bunch of villages that rely on their schools as kind of an anchor. So it's just this really... It's a very cavalier attitude about oh my, people yeah. she doesn't represent. Yeah, and so <laughs> this, you know, I think is going to really encapsulate a lot of kind of how the budget discussions continue going on now, which is, are we looking for, or we look, do we just want a balanced budget or do we want like a, a state with functioning things and a happy community and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. And also just sort of like, again, it gets back to this question of what are our values? And, mm-hmm. and I think that people understand the nuance of like, of, okay, these are, going to be difficult fiscal times and people are going to have to make adjustments and but but to suggest in the way she did that if you can't afford it maybe you should move out of state like that's yeah. such a, a such a hard hard message a hard way to deliver that news okay. like it, it doesn't seem very um uh compassionate yeah well and it, i think it sends it really i mean what then if we don't want if we don't want to be able to take care of our seniors now, what kind of state do we want? You know, if, if it's going to be that all of our grand or all of our parents will have to move out when they get to a certain age, like, is that a state that any of us want to really settle in? Well, yeah. and what happens if all the other states have the same attitude? Yeah. Like, then just, we're like, <laughs> if you're a homeless person, you better leave here. Yeah, yeah, you should just leave the country. Like, and then what happens? I mean, like, it, it's a very, it's a very Logan, Logan's Run kind of thing <laughs> that we're that we're setting up here. Any other news items that have been interesting? Well, you know, Cruz won the Super Tuesday in Alaska. Uh, that was kind of fun to follow, as it you know, as the right. the one hour. By a very slim margin. Yeah, as yeah. that that one hour my, where my Alaska man Donald gave him a run for his money. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, yeah, it was fun to see that like one and a half hour of attention, national attention that Alaska gets as we're waiting to counter mm-hmm. counter our poll. We got mentioned on the Daily Show. That was pretty cool. There we go. Did you yeah. see that? There was yeah. a yeah. <laughs> um. 
So let's talk about some dogs. So so Matt let's talk so mushing. Dogs. So Matt, <laughs> Matt just wants to talk about dogs. That's, that's really the, yeah, that's the secret episode. of this. So with us today is Susanna Caldwell from the uh, Alaska Dispatch News. And Susanna has been covering the Iditarod for several years now, uh, grew up around mushing, and is a uh, and is much more knowledgeable uh, about much mushing than uh, Matt and I are. And is kind enough to share her knowledge with us today. So yes. let's welcome her to the show. Hello. Hi, guys. Right. So we brought you in today. We're going to be talking about mushing, and that's maybe one of the things that we know we don't know a whole lot about. So... Uh, we brought in our uh, resident expert. So, so what what's your connection to mushing? Um, wh- what have you done? And uh, you, I understand you've you've gone on the trail a few times. Yeah. So I um, I am a reporter at Alaska Dispatch News, and for the last three years, I've been the lead reporter covering the Iditarod Trail sled dog race. So that's meant that every year I get to go out on the trail and follow the mushers as they go from checkpoint to checkpoint. Um, and, you know, report so back like? on the race. How do you get from point to point? Are you out there mushing too? Or are you on a snow machine? Are you helicoptering around? <laughs> um, it, it is mostly by airplane. Um, a little of, we have a Cessna 206 that um, we fly around. Well, I don't fly around. I can't fly. But um, that we have a pilot who takes us from place to place. So that's, I mean, most of these villages that we're going to, well, pretty much all of them, they have runways or rivers and, and places that we can land. Um, occasionally we've had to take snow machines, um, out to various portions of the trail. Um, but that's, that's a little more rare for that's me. That's exciting. But when was the first time yeah, you did that? Be. What was that experience like? Uh, going out on the trail? Yeah, or like, on, like just a snow like, okay, we're going to pile on the snow machine and drive out into the middle of nowhere. You ready to go? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like I, well, I was gonna say earlier too. I, um, I grew up around mushing. Um, and my dad was a musher who who did the race. Um, he started eight times and he finished six. And I, so I grew up with a bunch of dogs. And um, I grew up, you know, mushing with my dad. Um, you know, out in the Alaska wilderness. So I think certain elements of that weren't that different mm-hmm. to me. Um, it wasn't it wasn't that scary. But um, I, it's different as a reporter though, trying to balance you know um getting out and, and seeing things and, and talking to mushers versus the ability to actually get back and to be able to file a story or um to just somehow transmit the information that i've collected so i don't, I don't know it's it's um it's fun the first time i slept out in a tent in a checkpoint um when it was like you know 10 degrees below zero oh, that was kind of a really crazy experience for me but um, yeah. So let's talk about just, you know, why, how do we get to this point where, where we have, you know, mushing is such a big deal in Alaska? Um, well, I mean, mushing has really evolved over the years. Um, you know, I, I mean, mushing is not a new, um, thing by any means. I mean, um, native people in the North have been using sled dogs to get around for thousands of years. Um, especially in rural, rural places, um, that you saw even like kind of coming into the modern day. Um, you know, if I feel, and and from what I read and from what I understand, I think it became more of like a a hobby, um, for a lot of people back in like, uh, you know, once snow machines started to evolve and everything. 
um, you know, the where how we got here today, how we got to the Iditarod, and for um, mushing to be, you know, this this sport that I, I don't know what an equivalent would be like like NASCAR or something. I'm not really sure, but um, you know, like uh, the fast, speedy dogs. I mean, it all started in the '70s with um, Joe Reddington Sr. and some individuals out in mm-hmm. the Matsu Valley who were these mushing enthusiasts, and they, you know, they had dog teams and. It was it was more recreational, I suppose, at the time, or they were like leftover trappers or like people who used to use the dogs in a more utilitarian way. Um, and they, you know, they saw these snow machines coming up and they're like, OK, you know, how do we keep this sport going? How do we not kill it off? OK, well, let's maybe do a thousand miles sled dog race. Right. Um, and so that's how it started back in the Just 70s. It's a nice little stroll through the alaska wilderness like that well yeah stroll i mean yeah i mean it was so different back then you go back and and you read about those first races you know um somehow you know joe reddington and those other guys managed to to organize this thing and to actually have have a purse um back in the day i I don't know how they raised all that money but they they figured it out right and they, all the mushers took off. And the thing was, it was just so different because it was like the checkpoints weren't, you know, set up super well. Like now, if you go into a checkpoint, a checkpoint is like a, a well-oiled mis- machine. There are like people there who know what they're doing. And, um, you know, it, it's a very smooth operation. Um, then, I mean, you would hear kind of stories about people coming into the checkpoint in those early days of the race. And there would like be nobody around. Like they wouldn't like, what are we doing? Yeah. Um, I imagine that those early days were like that. I like I, there's probably some some of these remote villages that hardly even knew what was like. Oh, hey, there's a whole bunch of evil coming through. What's going on? I think for some of them, yeah, it was it was definitely probably like that. Um, at least based on what I've read and people I've talked to. I mean, I think for me, one of the biggest differences um, between the modern race and the early days of the race is that um, the trail was really hard back in the day. I mean, now we have this, now, you know, Iditarod has this whole crew of people that goes out and they, they put in the trail and there are markers that are both permanent and, you know, um, the little stakes that they can pull, you know, out of the ground. And, um, my understanding back in the day, I mean, these mushers were like breaking trail. They were like chopping down, you know, willows or whatever. And cause like, cause my, my understanding is they would, there was somebody who was breaking trail, but they would break trail like a month before or like very, like, like not, not close enough. And so the, you know, it would snow or like, you know, the, a river would, would have some overflow or something and you had to work your way around and, so it was really, it was a really challenging like adventure race back in the day. And it still is an adventure race today, I would say. It's just in those, those terms, you know, the Iditarod in recent years has done a lot to make the trail conditions much better. So, um, yeah. So yeah, anyway, now, yeah, I mean, it's just changed a lot over the years. And now we have this modern iteration of the race that's just super fast and super competitive. So, you know, you talked about the trail being different. How have the dogs changed? Are they, do they have now like DuPont logos on them? Are they turbocharged? Are they built in labs? You know, how, how have they changed? You know, is there, um, I I guess I see, and I see teams with big dogs, teams with little dogs, teams with in-between dogs. Teams with poodles. Teams with poodles. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's some laboratory work happening somewhere. I don't, I'm, you know, I, I don't live with some of these mushers, so I don't know. Um, but yeah, they, they have changed um, dramatically over the years. Um, 
You know, I think most people, when they think of Iditarod, they think of um, a Siberian Husky or even a Malamute. And those are really big dogs. They're, they're sort of tall. They have really thick coats. They have really big muscles. You know, they're kind of, you know, your typical. It sounds like a really good, nice muscle dog. I mean, a good race dog, right? E- that, wouldn't that be the best for the race? you got to pull a sled, right? Yeah, but you also well, have we- to go really fast. So you've well- seen mushers <laughs> over the years. They've, um, they've started breeding in, um, you know, a blood, like a, uh, racing dogs right like greyhounds and you know all, you know all kinds of different breeds of dogs that could be fast um and so yeah so now when you look at a sled dog they they look more like a hound or like a mutt you know they're they're definitely this like yeah. mix of dog um my favorite kind of dog <laughs> we're gonna add some cayenne pepper to this one <laughs> Yeah, and they're like I mean, it's a little bit like that, right? It's like experimental, uh, like oh, this will taste good. We'll throw this in the pot, and and then now you've got your super sled dog. Totally. When we were doing our when we were doing our video game, we had uh, we we did some research, and the the conclusion we came to was that the village dogs, those mutts, were like the very best sled dogs, and then the uh, <laughs> the Samoyeds were some of the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was accurate, but that was our conclusion. Yeah, no, it's re- it's interesting if you um, when you talk to mushers and uh, especially um, really competitive mushers, they they all have breeding programs, right? And they keep really really detailed notes on their breeding program. So you know, say they have a puppy, they can go back like ten generations, um, and they're able to show you like who the the parents of those dogs are and. Um, Wow. Yeah, it's it, like I've just seen mushers open up these books or these like really impressive spreadsheets of of you know their their bloodlines, right? Um, and so yeah, it, it's like yeah, it's just this weird random mix. I mean, there is a breed of uh, the Alaskan Husky, right? Which is this weird like I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and check the kennel club listing, but like it, it's just like a it's like a northern breed of dog. They have to have like a long coat. You can't have a poodle anymore. Um, and, but then other than that, it's like, it's like random, like as long as it can, like, as long as it like kind of looks like a Husky and like wants to run, that's like an Alaskan Husky. And that's basically what everybody has, except for, there are some that run like purebred Siberian teams in Iditarod, um, but they, they're really slow and, um. Yeah. It's like almost a gimmick or something. It's not. I wouldn't call it a gimmick. It's like people. It's like people who are like breeders of Siberian Huskies who want to show that the uh, dogs okay. are actually capable of like doing what they were sort of like bred to do in the first place. Yeah, it's interesting. There's been a lot of. I feel like in the last few years, there's been a lot of talk about um, human intervention in, in the breeding of dogs and how we end up with these weird dogs like you know that have all these health problems like. Um, bulldogs and you know bulldogs are definitely I think the 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 um, the real good example of kind of human intervention. But it seems like I mean what we're ending up with these sled dogs though is like this really kind of function o- over everything else, right? I mean you end up with like an interesting mix. So you compare like a sled dog to a bulldog, and one's probably a little better at doing his intended job than the other is. Right, like <laughs> I, I bred for snuggling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A dog that is most like a lump of uh, a bag of flour, yeah. Right. No, you're totally right. I mean, um, you know, the mushers, they're breeding for things like sturdy paws, right? Because if a dog is going to run a thousand miles, you need a dog that, like, isn't going to get cracks in its feet or, or you know, anything like that. The, the feet have to be able to kind of hold up. 
Um, you see things like appetite, like they, a lot of mushers breed their dogs to have really ferocious appetites because they're eating, you know, I think it's like what, like 12,000 or 15 or yeah, 12 to 15,000 calories a day or whatever is what they eat when they're racing. And so if you have a dog that's like kind of picky, like they don't, they don't need that. That's like, that dog is not going to be able to run. So, um, and then, yeah, there's like speed. Um, there are like, you know, the coats of the dogs, um, you know, you don't want too heavy a coat actually on a Husky because they are running and they overheat. So like you want to, you know, the heavier the coat, the, the harder it's going to be for the dog to cool off. Um, but at the same time, you also don't want a coat that's so thin that they can't be out in the cold weather. So yeah, it's a tricky balance to, to kind of get all those things right. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, uh, the idea of, of breeding, you know, breeding selective breeding for a race is really interesting to me. Uh, it's a, yeah, I don't know. It raises a lot of issues, uh, in my mind of just, uh, the idea of evolution and the idea of like, w- what do we want for ourselves as humanity and <laughs> how are we, I mean, I, cause, because what we're doing with these animals is, is ultimately, I mean, it, it says that we're okay with doing this sort of thing. And so why not do this kind of thing to people. <laughs> yeah. Zana, what do you think about that? <laughs> I mean, maybe we do, right? Like we, I yeah. don't know. We pick our, you know, our spouses or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. You know, for like desirable traits. I don't know. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I guess so. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a leap, it's but, like it, d- but, yeah. but that we're willing to, to breed animals for certain traits. Um, it's, it's not a big leap to, you know, to some really interesting ethical <laughs> questions. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I feel like it derailed us. Let's talk more about <laughs> sled dogs. Let's talk some more about dogs. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> well, continuing, I guess, on our, our relationship between dogs, are sled dogs good pets? That That's a really interesting question. And, I mean, I have personal experience with that because I grew up with 40 sled dogs in my front yard. Um, I think that they make great pets but I mean I think like any sort of dog um you know it depends on the owner so the thing about these sled dogs is um you know and we're just talking like say you just got a puppy right we're not talking about a dog that's like necessarily been trained to run the Iditarod um they're very high energy right as you can imagine they're Mm -hmm. just that's like that's another thing that they're breeding for right so Mm -hmm. um you know you don't want that dog to like be cooped up in your house right you know or or something like that so i yeah i think if you are a high energy person yeah a sled you know a sled dog could be a good pet um you know i they are kind of (laughs) hairy so um yeah i mean if you're okay with like you know dog hair pat and i are pretty hairy yeah (laughs) i'm okay with i'm okay with a little shedding yeah yeah yeah. i mean well i mean yeah so what's the relationship like though i mean especially when they're on the trail i mean i'm guessing it's probably a little bit different than uh you know with a pet dog right i mean what's is it like more of a working relationship is it more of a you know coach with his team kind of thing or what what's that kind of that like I, I guess I would argue that it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I mean, there there's this thing in dog mushing, which I, is is that a dog team can quit. Uh, like a, a dog team can literally, you know, they're running, and if you haven't trained them right and you haven't been running them right during the race, they will just stop and lay down, and they won't keep going. The whole team? The whole team, yeah. It's called, the, it's you, like, you, yeah, you hear about your huh. dog team quitting, yeah. 
Is it really embarrassing if that happens? Like is it like sports psychology for dogs? <laughs> yeah. You get a guy out there and get him pumped up. Come on, guys, you can do this. Yeah, and I mean, you can get them going again, but um, I mean, usually if a dog team quits on a musher, you've kind of like you've wrecked your race. I mean, it's really hard to come back from something like that. Is that like the is it the musher's fault almost? I mean, is it they they didn't give them the right pep talk before they left, or can you get out there with like a uh, a, you know, a Kong toy full of peanut butter and throw it out in front of them will they get going again? It's a player strike. You got to yeah. go into negotiations. <laughs> I, I, yeah, sure. A little all of that. Um, I mean, the whole the whole thing with, with, with dog sled racing is it's about running and resting, right? And if you run your dogs too much and you don't rest them enough, they are going to get tired. And eventually they're going to say, I don't want to keep going anymore. Like, I don't trust you anymore. Like, you haven't given me enough rest. Like, Say yeah. even though, you know, you've just come off like a 24-hour break or something, if you haven't, you know, adequately rested your dogs, in the back of their head, they're going to be like, dude, no, you made me run like all this way. Why should I trust you to like keep going? Um, I, so, I think that's yeah. something that's really important. I think that idea of trust, like that's something that, because mm-hmm. not only are the dogs trusting the musher, but the musher has to place a lot of trust in the dogs that they're going to be able to navigate the trail and and... Um, yeah, to tell me more about that that relationship of trust. Yeah, you know, I mean, one thing that um, you hear mushers talk a lot about is um, this attitude. Um, if they have to have a good attitude towards their dog team, and when they start to sort of doubt themselves that doubt actually gets sort of projected onto the dog team. And like a lot of that is through just like, like um, audio cues and sort of physical cues. Right. So if a dog musher is like looking kind of down, like the dogs can sense that. Or if the dog musher is like kind of angry at the team, like the dogs can sense that. Like, so you hear mushers Mm -hmm. talk a lot about how, even though like they know that like they're, they're not going to win or they feel sick or whatever, like that they have to keep this like good attitude going because, because the dogs will will respond positively to that. And eventually, if they can kind of, you know, turn that, like maybe their own moods or their own race will improve because their dogs have been like, okay, we're going to, we're going to, you know, okay, you're telling us you feel good. Okay, we're going to try to keep feeling good for you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, another thing that's really interesting with trust and I think that I'm just sort of fascinated by is the relationship that some mushers have with their lead dogs um, lead dogs are, are really, really important in the race. Um, you know, they are the, 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 the dogs at the very front of the team, right? And they are the ones who are taking a lot of cues from the mushers. The mushers will give them commands, whether to go left or right, um, or, you know, on by, which means like passing a team or like somebody who's like camped out on the side of the trail. Um, you know, they, they also sort of like set the pace for the team, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you hear mushers talk about their lead dogs all the time and the fact that, like, their lead dogs will sometimes, I don't know, have some sort of weird connection where they they sense things that the mushers can't and they'll, um, you know, they'll guide them through, like, a tricky part of the trail that the musher couldn't see coming or, um, you know, keep them going even when they, you know, the musher didn't think that they could keep going and, um, you, sometimes you see if like a lead dog gets injured or something, um, mushers will end up having to scratch or like, or leave the race because if they don't have an adequate leader to kind of take that spot, then like their team just can't keep going. So, yeah. It's yeah. Interesting. I remember I, I've talked with Brent Sass a few times and he's just totally in love with his, I think former leader now, Silver. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He and Silver have a really interesting bond. I've, I've talked to Brent about that over the years. He raised that dog up from a puppy and it was just this puppy he got from this sort of random recreational musher. Um, and they, they both sort of like came of age together as mushers and, um, just had this super tight bond and just sort of, yeah, I don't know, like found success through each other. It, kind of, it sounds like, so it's, it's interesting how that stuff can work. I'm kind of interested in those relationships. Like, uh, you're covering the race again this year. Who are the people that, that you're really interested in seeing how their relationship with their animals develops, um, you know, not necessarily who's going to be the fastest musher, but who has some? Who who are the ones that have really interesting stories this year? The mushers in general having interesting yeah, stories. Well, or the mushers and the dogs, like the whole kind of like the team. Like which yeah. teams have a really interesting story? Which team? Well, I mean, you know, I think this is sort of the obvious one, but um, Dallas CV is a force to be reckoned with right now. Um, he, you know, he's young. Um, and he has already won three Iditarods and he could easily win a fourth. I mean, he could, I mean, we, we could see him win for the next like 10 years or 20 years potentially, right? He's so young. Um, what is interesting to me is the relationship that he has with his animals. Um, you know, his, his dad and grandfather, they're these famous mushers. His dad is also an Iditarod champion. Um, but, and, and Dallas has like clearly learned a lot from him, but Dallas has also been really keen on going out and starting his own kennel and his own breeding line. And he's brought in a lot of dogs from other kennels to, to sort of create, create his own breed of sled dog, if you want to call it that, his own line of sled dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, the last, you know, he, he's said over the last few years that, you know, it's just this like hodgepodge group of dogs and somehow I got them to, you know, win, win a couple I did rods with me. And he keeps talking about, okay, now it's getting more serious. And now I'm like kind of getting to the point where I'm really proud of what I've put together with he's these already dogs. Won three times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, he so anyway i'm just really i'm really interested to see how that relationship sort of works with his dogs because he is like still trying to find out who they are to a degree yeah um, and what what's the life cycle of a of a iditarod dog like how many year how many iditarods can a single dog run and what's the um i guess i don't have a sense of that i mean a musher and you're talking about him being very young in his lifetime he'll probably go through several teams right yeah no you're totally right he um so generally with a sled dog um you're not going to run them in a thousand mile race until they're at least two years old um and even when you run them at that age they're very i mean those are young dogs um and so they're not necessarily seen as like the speedy um smart smart dogs because because just like a musher has to learn to run a thousand mile race i did rod dogs have to learn to run a thousand mile race and it, there's a lot of um sort of sports psychology i guess or veterinary psychology i don't i don't even know if that's a thing but um you know uh, <laughs> a dog i mean a dog has to learn what a thousand miles feels like and to understand yeah. that there's a purpose in that and that when they get to the you know that there is also an end point that they're not going to just run forever right um, right. And so those young dogs who haven't done the race, like they don't know that, right? And that's why you see a lot of like um, puppy teams out there. You'll you'll see sort of these mushers. You have like the B team for some of the big name mushers because they're training those dogs in a really like low stakes sort of easygoing pace. What running a thousand miles feels like? Oh um, wow! Yeah. So, so does Dallas have that? Does he have like a, a, a JV team? I believe that he has in recent years. Um, 
I can't I can't remember specifically who it is. Sometimes handlers will take those teams. So um, yeah, it, it just sort of depends. But most of yeah. the big, the, like you know, a lot of yeah, the big teams do it. Yeah. Yeah, it always seems like yeah, all the the big teams or the really competitive teams will have a, a puppy team. Usually, it seems like they they end up in the quest a lot of the time. You'll have like the one of them running the quest or something like that. Yeah, okay. that happens too. I mean, like for like a really obvious example is Ali Zirkle and Alan Moore. Um, mm-hmm. So Alan Moore has won the Yukon Quest what two two or three times at least to- twice, mm-hmm. and so he's a really competitive musher, right? But then when you go and you watch him in the Iditarod, he is like solidly middle of the pack, and that's because Alan takes the puppy team during the Iditarod, and Allie takes the eight team. Um, so oh, okay. she's super competitive as w- w- instead, and Alan is instead. Um, he's moving again, he's moving slower. He's just like getting those dogs prepped to take over once, um, the older dogs in, in the A team are, you know, ready to retire. And how old are those dogs when they retire? You said they're about two when they come in. How, how many years do they have in them? Right. Uh, usually like a sled dog can't really go much past nine years of age. Um, okay. yeah. So like, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So like four or five, six is sort of like the prime of a sled dog's life. In terms and what of does racing. sled dog retirement look like? Like when a sled dog retires, do they, do they, what's their pension plan look like? It looks like a couch. <laughs> um, they, they, like, honestly, a lot of mushers, um, I mean, the dogs, they, they, you know, I mean, think about how many thousands of miles those dogs have put in to get to mm-hmm. that point, you know. Um, I think retired sled dogs are some of the coolest dogs because they are just so chill. They just like, they, they like, they still have energy and they'll run around and they'll get excited. But then if you're like, Hey puppy, like, let's just go hang out on the couch. Like they'll totally just like lay down and like snuggle with you. And like, all they want to do is like sleep and chill out. And it's, oh, it's that's awesome. all I want to do. Yeah. One of my coworkers uh, recently got a sled dog, a retired sled dog who, uh, I think she, she ran him up. She was spent uh, the night that they brought her home, I think, was the first night under a roof that I think she ever had. Or under, you know, underneath a human roof, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and she refuses to get off the couch anymore. She'll, like, <laughs> get off to, like, kind of stretch a little bit and then get right back onto the couch and just hang out there all day. You can't get her anywhere, which is good. I guess you can't – she never gets into the trash because of it. Yeah, yeah, no. And you, some people have, like, recreational teams, too. Like, sometimes those, like, older retired sled dogs will go to, like, a recreational musher who just, you know, runs, like – I don't know, maybe like five or 10 miles at a time, like really short, like around the block sort of thing. Um, A a little senior league mushing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So that's, that's where they go. I like it. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's take a little break here and then we'll come back and and talk uh, to Susanna some more. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. All right. This is the part of the show where our sponsor break goes. Unfortunately for this episode, we don't have a sponsor. Um, we should we should talk about maybe um, approaching some people to to sponsor our show sometime. Yeah, <laughs> you know maybe I mean? maybe you the we listener. Could, yeah. I think we could elevate this from the uh, I think we could elevate this from from uh, uh, time consuming hobby to occupation. Yes. Um, all right. So that was our sponsor break. <laughs> Great. Back to the show. Okay, so we're back here with uh, Susanna Caldwell from the ADN, and she is the one of one of the reporters who is going to be covering the Iditarod this year. And uh, we're uh, very excited to be talking to her about mushing. And uh, I guess one of the questions I have is, 
um, about the future of the sport. We see um, every year we see these um, more and more impacts from like climate change uh, affecting the race, like the ceremonial start. And has they have to truck in a bunch of snow. Um, <laughs> there's you know there's just the um, well yeah, I mean last year it started up in Fair they yeah we had the actual start out of Fairbanks change where the start is yeah mm-hmm. so so Susanna what what do you think um, what do you think the future holds for the Iditarod or for or for mushing in general like is that something that you feel like is changing? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it, it is always changing. I mean, if you think, if you go back and you look at the last 40 some years that we've had this race around, it has already changed tremendously. Um, I, you know, I think, I think it will continue to change. I don't think it will necessarily change in, in bad ways. Um, but I, I do think that the Iditarod and dog mushing in particular is, is a really challenging sport to get into. Um, you know, it's not as easy as just going and getting a handful of dogs and, and running this race. Um, it takes right. years and years to build up your team. Um, it's a very, very expensive endeavor. Um, I've, I've heard from people that sort of the low estimate is it takes about 12 grand to get to the starting line of Iditarod. Um, and that's sort of, that's like, that's like a D team musher to you. I mean that, you know, that to say nothing of the, the people who are, who are super competitive in the sport. Um, Mm -hmm. so of course, so anything you do that makes that more challenging, you know, it could potentially be detrimental to the future of the sport. So, you know, you look at, you feel like there's, excuse me. Um, do you think, do you think there's, um, do you see more people getting into it now? I mean, what's kind of where is it now as far as like the number of competitors? Is it uh, is interest growing? Is it staying s- stable or is it going down? Or? I think I mean for this year there are eighty four mushers who are signed up to run. That's higher than it's been in recent years, but it's not significantly higher. Um, you've seen between sixty some and eighty some mushers every year for the past decade. Um, I you know it's it, I. I don't see it growing at this tremendous rate because, again, it is such a high barrier to entry. Um, but, but at the same time, you don't see people leaving the sport, I guess. So I, I don't, I don't know. I think it's sort of, it's, it's, it's a pretty flat line, I would say, in terms of people getting into it. I don't think people are rushing into it. Is, is it a legacy sport? Like, do does my dad have to have been a musher for me to be a musher? Is that I mean, or. Or is it something that like a high school kid can decide that he wants to be a musher and, and go do that, he or she? Yeah. No, you know, I think if you are a legacy musher, it, it helps a lot because you you know what you're getting into. You kind of know how to run a kennel. You know where to get your dogs. You know where to get your food. You know how to do that sort of in the most economic way. Um, but if you're coming into it from scratch, that can be pretty difficult. Um, you know, it maybe if you have a lot of money, you can actually go out and, you know, buy a dog team. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's not completely unheard of. Um, or you can, you know, start from nothing and work your way up. I mean, you see musters like that every year. So, um, I would say that it's not, you don't necessarily have to have relatives or something involved in the sport. It's, it's just going to, to help you tremendously, especially if you want to be competitive from a fast age. Otherwise you're going to have to go through, you know, the whole process of collecting your dogs, of breeding your dogs and, you know, figuring yeah. out what works. And that's just going to take a long time versus if you're like born into it and you're like handed this group of dogs that's already been mm-hmm. sort of 
you know, bred to, to be fast and, and competitive. Yeah. A lot of other sports like, uh, like hockey and soccer, they've all got these like kids programs that they're trying to get young kids involved, uh, in the sport at an early age to, um, kind of help build, build the enthusiasm for the sport. Does the Iditarod have something similar? Do they have something like a kid's program? They do, there's the junior Iditarod, um, which is, um, it's a, it's a 150 mile race. Um, and it's only for, for teens, uh, there, I think you have to be cool. F- yeah. 14 to 18, I think is, or, or 14 uh-huh. to 17 or something. You can be, you can sign up for the Iditarod once you turn 18. Um, so yeah, there is, there's usually like pretty, um, low numbers participating in that. Like I, I think there were 10 this year. Um, so yeah, there is like a kid program. Um, a lot of those kids though, they, they have family who mush, right. You know, their, their, their parents have a dog team that they can, they can do still. It's really cool that like teenagers are out running 150 mile dog race. Like, so we're probably not going to see like a, a movie of inner city kids learning to do math via, via mushing though. I mean, probably basketball will stay that one. Um, yeah, I don't, there aren't many mushers in urban areas for kind of obvious reasons, I feel like, but yeah. Is, is mushing a sport where, <laughs> I feel like I'm just throwing all these, I just know so little about mushing. Um, I, is mushing a sport where, like, um, someone with a reasonable athletic ability could could jump into it with someone else's team and, and do okay? Or do you have to have a lot of experience having had mush before i mean like like in hockey i went out on the ice and i couldn't couldn't walk because (laughs) because i was on ice skates but in soccer like if you can run you can just run around and maybe you're not great at kicking the ball but you can still contribute that's a that's a really interesting question i don't know that i've i've really thought about that too much i i think um there are so many moving parts in a dog team and i i don't i mean both literally and i guess like sort of like metaphorically like I, i you know you have to be able to control 16 dogs, right? So you need to have an ability to like handle, handle dogs, right? To know how to be around a Mm -hmm. dog. Um, You do need to be physically strong because you are picking those dogs up. You were, you know, you're maneuvering your sled. Um, You know, there's, you know, maybe physically having to move things off of the trail, you know, if there's, if there's an issue there. So yeah, you do have to be like literally like physically strong. I mean, I think, you know, fundamentally like, yeah, I think anybody can stand on the back of some sled runners and have a bunch of dogs, like pull them down the trail. But then once you start talking about the, the maintenance of the team and the feeding of the team and perhaps the sleep deprivation that mushers deal with while they're racing or, you know, just the personal care elements of like being in the wilderness um it's really tricky it's not something that like you can just walk into and do like the the, i mean there's a reason that the iditarod makes mushers go through qualifying races you have to do Mm -hmm. and you have to do at least one 300 mile race and then i think it's like up to like 500 miles of uh of, of racing total before you can compete in the iditarod and that's to prove that you can actually be out in the woods and handle your dog team and handle yourself in these challenging conditions. Yeah. And, and the organization is, is, I guess we've been talking about mushing in this Alaskan context. Um, but I feel like it's a much bigger sport, right? There, they have mushing competitions all over the world, right? In, in Northern hemispheres. I, 
Am I correct or am I wrong? Well, there are some. Um, It's not super, super big, though. Um, I mean, you know. So so are we kind of the mushing capital of the world then? I mean, I don't know that we're the capital per se, but we we have a lot. I mean, the fact that we have 2,000 miles sled dog races, you know, is pretty tremendous. And the fact that we have about, you know, 10 more of these mid-distance races over the course of a season is pretty impressive. Um, you see shorter races in some places, like down in the lower 48, you see these stage sled dog races often occurring. Um, and there are, there are some of the mid distance racing, but, um, I I do think it's more centered in Alaska. You know, Norway does have a lot of mushing too. They also have, um, I don't think it's a a thousand miles, um, but it's like a thousand kilometers or something. Um, the Finnmark Slope, which is a really popular race. Russia has a has a race, the Nadezda Hope race. Um, it's not as long, um, and that's more of a throwback to like traditional mushing styles. But um, yeah, there are there are races in, in other places. Um, yeah, I like that that rhymed. That made me oh. pretty happy. <laughs> um, so the uh, so but the I did read is the big sled dog race, right? It is. Yes. Yeah, that's accurate. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and and so the organization that. Um, that runs the Iditarod, I don't know much about them. What's the, um, I, I read an article that you wrote last, I guess it was last, this last week. And, um, it was about, uh, like muzzling the mushers. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the, the Iditarod trail sled dog race is, uh, put on by the Iditarod trail committee, which is a nonprofit organization, um, you know, it has its own board of directors. It, it, it basically all it does all year is is this one race, right? Which is a is a pretty tremendous undertaking at the end of the day. Um, anyway, um, but they you know they organize the race and they they make sure it happens and they set the rules for the mushers and they're the ones who pay out the purse, which the purse is pretty impressive um, for the Iditarod. Um, that, How impressive? Well, I believe. I would have to. I don't have the numbers in front of me. You win like, I think Dallas CV last year won seventy thousand dollars and a Dodge Ram truck, like a pickup truck. So it's it, got must have like three of those now though, right? Yeah. Like, don't they always get a truck? They do get a truck, although um, I know Lance Mackey one year somehow traded it for like a, a Speedster car, like some sort of Dodge like <laughs> like muscle car. They're just gonna be driving a team of Dodge Ram trucks next year. Yeah. I think you can sell it. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I'm sure you can yeah. sell it. Um, so, so how do mushers make a living? Do they? Is it all prize winnings? Do they win from races, or how? You know, how do they put food on the table and kibble in the bowls? Yeah, I mean that's sort of complicated, and it does depend on what kind of level of musher you are. Um, you know, for for the little guys, I mean, these are people who have full time jobs um, or you know seasonal employment or something like that, and they are. Um, trying to work, you know, their work lives around their mushing lives. Um, for the top guys, though, I mean, they are they're getting money, um, you know, from the race itself. And you know, if you win, it's, it's not. But it's not like a salary, though, right? No, it's not a salary. No, Iditarod doesn't pay them. Um, no, I mean, they're they're independent contractors or something. I don't know. I'm not quite sure what what they would be exactly. Well, they're contestants, I guess. It's like they're 
they win a prize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The thing is, like, the prize money doesn't really – you could you couldn't live off it, right? I mean, Dallas TV, who won, you know, first place last year, got $70,000 and a, a pickup truck, right? Which um, – I don't. I mean, maybe that's a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, maybe that's a hundred thousand dollars. But you know, I mean, that is is for the level of of racing that he's doing, um, and the cost that he has. That's not enough. So, and that's also the top guy. There's eighty other people. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, and for every position, you know, your your prize gets cut by a significant amount of money. You know. Um, and so, yeah, mushers have sponsors and those sponsorships can be anything from like cash donations from, you know, big companies, or it could be, um, in kind donations like, um, like dog food or something like that, or booties or, um, freeze dried meals or, or sunglasses. I mean, it just kind of runs the gamut. And so that's why you see mushers and they've got their, you know, during the race, they have their jackets, and their jackets will have you know patches or whatever of their of their sponsors. So yeah, that's a, a big thing in in terms of how these guys survive. Are any of them crowdfunding? Uh, Didi Genro is crowdfunding this year. Um, yeah, because she Didi Genro is one of the top competitors in the race, and and uh, been a perennial fan favorite. She's never actually won. She's been runner up a couple times. Um, She's the one that wears the bright pink parka, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so Dee Dee just had a series of really challenging events over the last year, including her house burned down in the uh, in in a in a wildfire out in Willow, and her mom oh, no. died, and um, yeah, just like a, a series of really unfortunate events. And one of the biggest ones is you know that was totally beyond her was that shell pulled out of alaska right um and with that shell had been one of her primary sponsors so she lost all that money and so um some of her her friends basically got together and said we're gonna crowdfund you dd and so there's a gofundme out there um they, she's she's trying to raise seventy thousand dollars and when i checked a few I weeks just, ago i think it was up to like twenty thousand so no i just pulled it up it's at fifty six thousand right now so she's doing really well oh okay yeah so yeah. yeah i mean she's really popular so i mean that'll definitely definitely help her tremendously so i guess we start wrapping this up a little bit now uh do you want to close on kind of racing stories yeah you know something like that yeah so <laughs> yeah so i don't have a lot of experience with mushing or mushers but i was in the uh i was in anchorage um last year i was in a hotel elevator going up and there's this guy with this uh just crazy sealskin vest and i I couldn't help it i had to say like hey nice vest guy (laughs) and uh and he's like oh yeah craziest thing the seal tried to attack me and my my buddy made me this vest (laughs) and i was like wait what (laughs) and uh I think you actually know more about this story than I do, but there was a, a musher who was attacked by like a seal, a, a rabid seal or something on the trail. Did that happen? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it happened. Uh, I mean, you know, I like obviously wasn't like physically present to see Jeff King get attacked by a seal. Um, however, I was in the checkpoint of Koyuk, which is it, it, the this this alleged seal attack which which I, be, I believe jeff i don't i saw his eyes like when he came into the checkpoint all freaked out um i, I think it was real he um <laughs> he yeah it, it, it occurred somewhere on the sea ice in between um shek tulik and koyak and um 
you know, I'm in Koy- I'm in Koyuk, and uh, th- that's almost one of the last checkpoints. And um, Jeff had been leading for a while, but at that point, they, a lot of mushers had a really rough run in, and so they came in just sort of like exhausted. And it was at that moment when it was like really clear that Dallas CV was gonna win. Um, but yeah. anyway, so Jeff came in like well behind the leaders. Like I think Dallas had already taken off at that point, and he he comes in, and he's looking sort of defeated, and he just looks at me, and he's like have I got a story for you? And cause I've known Jeff for a couple years now. And, um, anyway, so he's like stops and he starts, you know, um, feeding his dogs and he starts telling me this story about how this seal like came out of nowhere and just start like started running at him. And he's just freaking out. Cause he's like, I've never seen a seal like actually lunge at a person. Like I couldn't figure out, you know, what's going on. And, Jeff, you know, he's like, he's like chopping up meat. So he had like a, like an ax in his hand at the time. And he's making like these big wild gestures and like his eyes are like as big as his head. And he's just like, this fucking seal comes out of nowhere and starts coming at me. And I don't know what I'm going to do, you know? And he just like kind of freaked out. And, um, anyway, it was really, it was like, it was so surreal. Cause I was like, Jeff, are you just messing with me like I because mushers will mess with you like they you know they kind of they look at it as sort of a point of pride to screw with reporters so um he he was very genuine though in 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 telling his story and we did actually hear from other mushers that came through that there was a seal um that they saw on the ice that was like bloody I guess and they think that the seal was was um giving birth to pups or something and so it was probably like aggravated and you know, I, we we looked into it. We haven't really heard of any. There's, I, I guess, there aren't many documented cases of like seal attacks. Well, now there are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now there's one. Seal now on we got one on the record. Yeah. Right. I just love. I just love that he's in this elevator and like some some guy from some guy out in the village heard his story and made him a seal skin vest after that. <laughs> yeah, he said the seal was huge too. He's like, it's like the biggest seal I've ever seen, and yeah, it was. Um, it was pretty goofy hearing him tell the story. I feel like any any seal that would be chasing me would probably be, feel like the biggest seal. <laughs> seen. So, yeah. were there other like what are some other like? Sort of sound the the Dinnerot Trail in particular sounds like the place for like tall tales to be made, like these great kind of epics, legends almost. I mean, what are what are some other things? Like I, I always am kind of enamored, I guess, with the, the poodle scene. Um, yeah, what are some I did read stories that we should know about? Yeah. Oh man. Um well, I mean, yeah, the poodles, like um there was this guy back in I believe it was like the the early 80s who ran a dog team with poodles. Um although he had to have like sled dogs as his leaders because poodles like don't have the 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 natural desire to like run. So they needed, like, the, the poodles will run, but you have to have, like, a dog leading them, basically. Um, so, yeah, he, so he had these poodles. Um, and my understanding is that they, you know, they did okay. The only thing was, like, they got into trouble because, I guess, like, the poodles, like, froze to the ground, kind of. They didn't actually freeze to the ground. Their, like, fur froze to the ground or something. It was it was not good. Oh. Um, yeah. And so after that, the race made a rule that all the dogs have to be northern breed dogs, which is where you get into, like, the husky and stuff like that. They, they have to have proper coats, essentially. So, yeah, there was the, the poodle guy. He doesn't – there are no more poodles. 
I talked to him a couple years ago, and he said that all the poodles <laughs> died. They went to doggy heaven. So, uh-huh. um, yeah. Um, anyway, what else? other stories? Um, I mean, well, there have been a, quite a few really close finishes. Yeah. How, how do you end up with? So I think the quest is really notable for this. I think there was one year, right, where it was just minutes apart. How do you end up? How do you end up so close after a thousand miles? Yeah, I mean, I think to be honest with you, like even covering this race, and you know, you're out there on the trail for like nine days, and like it still comes down to a couple minutes. It's just, it it, it is sort of dumbfounding, right? Um, to think about, it could all come down to that. I mean, the Iditarod is famous. Like, yeah, the Quest has had a few really close finishes, but the Iditarod had a one second finish between uh, Dick Mackey, so Lance Mackey's dad and rick swinson um back in in the 70s i believe um and it's like this really famous photo of like two guys like charging down front street and gnome like he you know dick won by like i think it was like a nose of a dog or something it was like super super (laughs) close right so yeah Mm -hmm. um so now we'll be breeding lead dogs with longer noses. <laughs> yeah, is it the is it the is it the first dog to cross the line, or is it the end of the sled? I think <laughs> it's the first. I think it's the first dog, and that was like the controversy. Um, is that like I so think because I think so, like so Rick, I, or I think yeah, Rick, his sled went under the burled arch first because like Dick like collapsed, but like but they counted it as Dick because Dick's dog was the first. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of crazy. Okay, so yeah, so yeah. hypothetically, hypothetically, if I had a, a dog sled team with ten thousand dogs that stretch from Anchorage to Nome, I could win. Well, you couldn't <laughs> because there are specific rules that say you can only have sixteen dogs. Oh, and they saw me coming. I know. <laughs> <laughs> 16 really long dogs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess there, well, there might be rules on how long your, your gang line, you know, the, the connection is. But uh, you could, yeah, in yeah. theory, I guess, have My like rope. a thousand mile gang line. A thousand mile gang line? <laughs> Go. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think back, back to your question, Matt, about, you know, how can they be so close? Uh, you know, I, it's, hard, it's hard to say. I mean, basically, it's a race at the end of the day, right? And so these guys are pushing as hard as they can to get their dogs to know them as fast as they can um, while still, you know, not, not letting their team quit, not, not burning these guys out. So you're constantly messing with this run-rest schedule. And um, so it's just who can, who can get there fastest with the least amount of rest and the musher who makes the fewest mistakes in terms of, of making that happen is the one that, that makes it happen. So... Yeah. Yeah. I think you're being pushed to go as fast as you can by, I mean, as, as fast as you must. And so there's probably just not a, like, oh man, that guy's right on my heels. I got to go faster. And it's like, it's so much more complicated than that, right? In terms of like the resting, like if your dogs need rest, like you've got to like let them rest. And you know, if that means you are a couple hours behind this next person, like that's how it goes. But maybe they have to rest later, and then all of a sudden you're right back to where you started. So, um, yeah, it's it's tricky. So, Susanna, with your own history, with, with following the sport, are you going to get into dog mushing <laughs> anytime soon? Uh, no, I am not going to get into dog mushing anytime soon. Um, 
and I guess I can explain that. I mean, I, I grew up around dogs, right? Like, I know what goes into, like, maintaining a dog lot and to, um, you know, actually having to, 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 to get to just the start line of the race. And it's a tremendous amount of work. I mean, it, not only is it, is it expensive, but it's just, it becomes your life. It is all consuming. And, you know, um, if you want to do things outside of mush dogs, it's very, very difficult. And I'm at a point in my life where I like to like do things like travel and, <laughs> um, and sit on the and couch, stay out late. <laughs> yeah. And not have to go pick up dog poop or, you know, feed, feed my, my dog. And we're talking about, we're not just talking about like, you know, like one little dog pooper scooper. I mean, you're talking about like tons of, of dog crap. So yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. I'm just not, I'm just not feeling that right now. So, or maybe ever. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh- <laughs> On that note, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll say thank you here. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, this week. Uh, have good luck to you. Have fun covering the race. I think it's. I think you're gonna have a blast, and uh, and I hope it's a fun one. Thanks. I hope so too. <laughs> hey, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, and we really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Hello, Alaska. Doesn't have a sponsor this week, but we do want to give a very special thank you to Susanna Caldwell for coming on the show. You can find all of her fabulous reporting from the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race at adn.com slash Iditarod. That is adn.com slash Iditarod. And now our poetry corner uh, featuring another poem from Cindy Smith at clsmithak on Twitter. Taking care of elders is something we should do. I'd rather pay for them, dear rep, than keep on paying you. Oh, I like that one. That's, That's a good one. It ties back into what we were talking about earlier yeah. in the show. <laughs> well, so what's the good news? Yeah, so let's end on some good news. Uh, what's the good news? Um, so uh, one, one takeaway from you know well, Super Tuesday, take yeah, yeah. or leave it. But one of the good things about it is that there really has, it appears to be the extremely high interest in politics this year. And it might be for a good reason. It might be for a bad reason. It might be because people are afraid of uh, what the outcomes might be. But at the very least, people are getting pretty engaged here. And so we saw, uh, you know, them shatter the turnout um, on Tuesday, which, uh, you know, regardless of how you lean politically, it's good to see people out and engaged. Okay, so my good news is that there's like this Fairbanks invasion coming up and there's going to be all these Fairbanks musicians playing music here in Juneau um, pretty soon, which is exciting. Um, and, uh, one of those musicians has actually been living here for a few months, uh, Rebecca File, um, of Harm. And so, uh, her band Harm, uh, has an EP and you can find it on Bandcamp and they said that we could play some of it on the show. So we'll go out on that music, uh, after we say our farewells. Yes. Um, go ahead. You can find us, um, on the internet in various places. Uh, Twitter is one of those places where I'm at, at at FDM Politics. And I am at Alaska Robotics. And you can also find us at HelloAlaska.pizza. That is HelloAlaska.pizza. And you can also send us an email anytime at HeyGuys at HelloAlaska.pizza. All right. For, for now, thank you everybody for listening. And until next time. Goodbye, Alaska. Goodbye, Alaska. <laughs>
will my long swim underwater.